Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, I have two very interesting guests for you. The first one is uh, Preeti Srivastav, who is in Amsterdam. She is the director of energy for Guidehouse, a consulting firm, and she's going to tell us something about how we can have less impact on the earth moving forward. And then we go to Boston, where we're going to talk about chronic fatigue syndrome with Charmian Proskauer. Chronic fatigue syndrome, more commonly known as myalgic encephalomyelitis, is a terrible disease, and we're going to learn more about it and how the patients are bearing up in the current coronavirus crisis. To the broadcast, Preeti, uh, what is your role in Europe in consulting about the environment in the energy sector? Well, I lead all the work that we do for energy, sustainability, and climate change with large corporates and investors. But I also work on circular economy portfolio. So I lead that globally, which makes me work with the public sector, governments, nonprofits, and United Nations quite a bit. Let's back up there to that, that very intriguing phrase, circular economy. What does that mean? It's fairly recent in the lexicon of uh, environment and energy. To be honest, Llewellyn, it's just a new glamorous term for something which has been there for a very long time. It's a new umbrella term that has been used in Europe, Union, maybe more so in Europe than US and other parts of the world, to describe a model which is more focused towards closing the loop of materials and energy, so reducing consumption, looking more so at alternative materials, looking at end of life. Recycling is one of the most popular parts of circular economy that people are familiar with, but it looks beyond that. It looks at the materials, the nutrient cycles, and looking to making sure that the cycle is closed at the end of it. How has the pandemic affected the way corporations look at their operations? How will they be materially changed going forward and how sensitive will they be going forward to environmental issues? That's a really good question. And I think, to be honest, this crisis unexpectedly has turned out to be a stress test for companies and for countries on resilience and business continuity. It has unfortunately highlighted the risks that have been inherent in our system for a very long time. A lot of companies globally and more so within Europe have been looking at these principles as part of their corporate sustainability strategy. But now each and every company is being compelled to look at shorter supply chains, energy efficiency. They are being forced to look at digitization like this video conferencing. And I hope some of these elements continue beyond the crisis because they form the foundation of a decarbonized economy. And I know uh, a lot of people have been talking about how emissions have reduced in the past couple of weeks and months because of the coronavirus situation. But to be honest, more so than ever, investors have been asking companies now to share their long-term sustainability strategy because they see how important resilience has come up because of this crisis. And how are they dealing with their workforces? The workforce is, of course, the immediately impacted uh, but to gain all of these goals, we'll need maybe a retrained or resensitized workforce. Yeah, and the silver lining of this moment, I think that 
employees, the workforce around the globe, uh, citizens, you and me, uh, companies and countries, we're all alert and mobilized. And the question is, which route are we going to take? Which direction are we going to take? So for companies, it has become extremely critical, not just for their workforce and employees, but also for their clients to make sure that all of these economic recovery plans and stimulus bills have climate action enshrined within them. So in Europe, for example, the EU Green Deal is moving forward. And yet companies like Unilever, E.ON, Volvo, are pushing for a higher climate action because there is such a strong connection between climate resilience and a green economy post-recovery, of course. You've just used an expression which uh, causes a lot of division in the United States, Green New Deal. That's yeah. accepted in Europe or is the European version of the Green New Deal different? Well, in Europe, uh, it's an official uh, term that is being used for the EU Green Deal, which looks at decarbonization, the whole European Union bloc by 2050. So they're looking at climate neutrality for all the member states by 2050. And it's a very acceptable, but also a very optimistic and positive term here in Europe. Are we going in different directions? I think we were going in different directions um, in US and in Europe and also in Asia, even in terms of how we, like you said, how we translate the word sustainability or climate action. But I think this crisis has highlighted some of the fragilities in the global supply chain, in the global uh, economies. And I think a more broad approach, which is both resilient, but also green, is being uh, socialized, but also being embraced as part of even the US stimulus bill. I think social development, the social part of the ESG that is quite popular in the sustainability world is getting more and more highlighted. So I think we're all converging towards this idea that a resilient economy also needs to be a green economy. And that is exactly what we all need globally. Now you have a lot of leaves in your portfolio. Uh, you have uh, in your own career worked for the extreme, what was regarded, at least from where I'm sitting, as the extreme of the environmental movement, uh, Greenpeace, yeah. uh, to consulting to governments, to consulting to some of these very large European and international corporations. What do you take from the left that can be applied on the right? What can they learn from what Greenpeace has done, for example? Well, I think we are all trying to say the same things and trying to change the world in the same ways. And be it addressing this crisis or be it addressing the climate risk, it all requires the same fundamental shift from a short-term performance to a long-term resiliency. And I think that is the narrative that is also resonating more and more from the left towards the right and vice versa. And I think these connections were not very apparent for quite some time, but this crisis has really brought about how these connections can make a change in the positive way for the economic recovery of the world. Preeti, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Clearly, you're a brilliant and also intriguing woman with your uh, one foot in the United States, one foot in Europe. And tell us a little more about who you are. Well, I was born and brought up in India. Uh, I moved to Japan at a very young age uh, for my schooling as well. I started my first job in Japan, actually, and I moved to US um, as part of 
uh, strategy consulting. I was based in California. And I remember in the early 2000s, sustainability was not a very popular topic, uh, not just in US, but even globally. So I used to do a lot of work on strategy consulting, on supply chain engagement. And I remember it was around 2005, 2006, when the supplier code of conduct from retailers like Walmart and Safeway in US became very interesting and very focused. Uh, and that's when I decided to move a little bit more towards sustainability. And I moved to Netherlands uh, about eight years ago just to be a part of, you know, the focus group. I feel Europe is really leading the dialogue, not just on what we should do, but actually implementing concrete plans in each of the countries here in the European Union. As career paths go, that is a pretty diversified and fascinating one, at least geographically. How does the work vary from country to country? And where have you found the greatest sympathy towards the environment, if that's a reasonable way to put it? Well, it's a very interesting question, Level, and, and to be honest, now in hindsight, I look back and I think in most of the Asian countries, there has been inherent respect towards environment as part of the culture. I didn't realize it then, uh, but you know, uh, we pray uh, stones and mountains and trees like they're, they're gods in, in, in Japan and in India. So I think there the narrative has been more about how do we use sustainability and environment to uh, improve the quality of life, so improve communities, improve energy access to uh, uh, locations and improve livelihoods. Whereas I see in, in, in US, the sustainability narrative started with just very simple regulation um, and policy driven narrative. Uh, but I do see in Europe, it's kind of neck to neck. I think the business pushes the ambition as much as the European governments push the ambition. So it's a very healthy mix of of balance of action and dialogue here. Going forward from the crisis, do you think corporations will change a lot or will they accelerate directions they were already headed in? I think there is no other option but to accelerate. I can share examples, right? Because right now, even though we are in the middle of the crisis, uh, a lot of my clients, a lot of companies in Europe are doing three things. So first, they are looking at all the options and opportunities that are coming out of the EU Green Deal or each of the country's recovery plans to see where they can use some of these low carbon technologies, where they can initiate the decarbonization. Secondly, um, this crisis has really revealed how fragile their supply chains are. So they are developing end-to-end -end resiliency across their supply chains. And third, and the most interesting and important element that most of the companies here in Europe are looking at is how they can change their business model as the world rethinks what matters. So if there ever was a time to double down on moving away from a linear consumption-based economy to a more sustainable circular economy, I would say now is the moment and now is the time where companies are looking at it too. Preeti, finally, is Europe going to make its electricity very differently from how the rest of the world makes it? Europe, at least France, was a leader in nuclear power, seems to have backed off that. A lot of uh, effort in wind power in Norway, for example. Where's Europe going in terms of making electricity, which has such a big impact on the climate? Absolutely. And I think those ideas around 
harnessing the wind and solar are not going to go out of fashion. I think those are still going to lead the front. But some of the new technologies that are picking up a lot in utility sector in, in Europe are the carbon capture and utilization and hydrogen. So there are a lot of consortiums uh, within Netherlands, within France. Actually, Netherlands and France are coming together to look at what are the options for hydrogen and carbon capture from the North Sea or from of the other areas. And not just from the public sector, a lot of companies uh, are coming together to see how they can harness and tap into the carbon capture and hydrogen technologies in Europe. So I think that is something new that's picking up a lot of steam here. And hydrogen, this is a word that was big in the 70s. We were looking at hydrogen. Hydrogen was one of the things that was going to save us from this terrible energy crisis. And then it sort of faded. It went off the radar. It was out. It was not in, in Overton's window, if you will, of energy. And suddenly we're back. Uh, hydrogen is on everybody's lips. What has happened? Has, it, has the technology improved or has the mental state of the industries changed radically? I think it's a bit of both. So especially in Netherlands, uh, I think of over the last few years in particular, when the focus was very heavy on moving away from fossil fuels, we actually created this long list of what are the other technologies that were ruled out in the last decade or so. And let's relook at them with a new angle and perspective. And a lot of development and uh, technology, especially in the hydrogen and carbon capture has happened in the last decade. It's still new. There is a, still a lot of speculation and forecasting in terms of costs, what will be the storage areas, what will be the hubs. So there is a lot of modeling and forecasting involved just like any other area but it's still something that seems very promising right now sustainability has two meanings one is will the lights stay on no matter what and the other is will the lights not damage the environment the effort of keeping them on and how does this sit with you what when you say sustainable what do you mean do you mean absolutely reliable supply or do you mean reliable supply that has no or very moderate impact on the environment? Well, when I think of sustainability, I think of those two and that this reliable uh, sustainability ideas are not just environmentally positive and economically positive, but also socially positive. And I think the social aspects of sustainability have long been ignored, but they really got into the limelight with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And it has really created this movement and campaign in Europe where when you talk about sustainability with a company or a country, there's always an equal distribution of focus on how the environmental impacts are being looked at, but also how the social impacts. And more so, like you spoke about workforce, uh, I think this crisis is only going to highlight the social aspects of sustainability even more. And that's why a lot of companies call it ESG. It's environmental, social, and governance initiatives. And when I say governance, lots of people confuse it with corporate governance because you know there are two elements in, in a company's governance. The governance associated in ESG is more focused towards the governance that will be required to run the environmental and social teams that a company would pick. Tell me a little more about yourself. What do you do when you're not saving the world, Preeti? Uh, well, I am an ardent gardener, as you can see. I, uh, I do a lot of uh, gardening. I do a lot of painting as well. And Amsterdam is one of those beautiful towns, which is still very cosmopolitan, but had a very small village feel to it. 
um, like on the Earth Day, there is a lot of festivals, there are a lot of events around, actually in my neighborhood, which are very uh, interesting. So I go out a lot here in Amsterdam and explore the town, but I do a lot of work at home as well. And uh, uh, so Amsterdam and you have come together in a happy uh, amalgam. Yes, absolutely. I feel like this is home now. And I think not just from my career perspective, I'm quite personally passionate about sustainability as well. And it's very encouraging to be surrounded by a very positive spirit towards the environment, towards the society. And actually every dialogue that I've had is always pushing the ambition towards climate forward. So it's, it's a good place to be in. Pretty, you're a fascinating woman. It's been a joy to talk to very you. Very kind, thank you. We go now from Amsterdam to Boston and to Charmian Proskauer, who is on the board of the Massachusetts Civets ME and FM Association. A quick explanation, that stands for myalgic and cephalomyelitis, which you may also know as chronic fatigue syndrome. This is a disease that really steals lives, takes them away and leaves its sufferers uh, under glass, living but not living, not enjoying, constantly tired, suffering pain, unable to function. One sufferer told me it's like having an automobile where there's no gas in the tank. And they live for years and years in this, uh, this state of not being part of the world in which they are. It is very tough obviously on the sufferers, and even tougher, maybe, on those who look after them year in and year out, the caregivers. All this comes into a terrible uh, reality during the coronavirus outbreak, because these people who have lived in isolation for so long are now, if anything, more isolated. Charmian, you have a program of reaching out to sufferers, and that using technology, using uh, Zoom to assist them. How is that going? Yes, that's true. We we have been using this opportunity to reach out to our patients, our members, and friends because everyone is isolated right now, and it's even although most of our MECFS patients live a very isolated and homebound life anyway, it's even harder now because everyone is that way. So we have been making an effort to reach out to people just to see how they're doing and to talk to them. And how many people have you been able to reach? We've done a series of Zoom meetings and we're probably going to do at least a couple more meetings and then those are just general meetings to explain about our association and get acquainted with people and have them get better acquainted with us but we are also starting up several online support groups so that groups of 10 to 15 people can meet weekly or bi-weekly and just uh, have a chance to talk to each other on a more continuing basis about how they're doing and how they're feeling. Now, your association is headquartered in Boston, or your chapter is in Boston. How far afield do you go? If somebody in San Francisco uh, wants to talk to you on Zoom, can they do that? 
That would be fine, absolutely fine. We've <clears throat> sent out the invitation to everyone on our newsletter list. And although we confine our patient services primarily to Massachusetts and a little bit in, in the surrounding New England states, the online groups, uh, we had people already from uh, Minnesota, from Florida, from California on the online groups about we have about 2,000 people on our newsletter list, and only about half of them are actually in Massachusetts. Another 20% are from other states in the U.S., and about 30% actually are international. How do people contact you? Our website is www.massmecfs.org. Uh, Org. And there's a contact us uh, link, and people can contact us that way. That's really the best way. And there's also sign up for our newsletter uh, right on the home page, and people can sign up, and then they'll be sure to get any announcements of anything that we're going to be doing. Uh, aside from the immediate need to try to end some of the isolation or ameliorate it, uh, long term, are we making progress towards a, a solution to this disease? Well, I am actually guardedly optimistic um, for a couple of reasons. One is that there is quite a bit more research going on now, and we're very fortunate here in Massachusetts to have a new research collaborative, which has started up at, at the Harvard hospitals led by Dr. Ron Tompkins, and he's got a large number of researchers interested in MECFS. Right now, during the coronavirus pandemic, um, only essential research, which is mostly coronavirus research, is happening now. So some of our research projects have are on hold for the moment, but I'm sure they will start up again. and. There's so much work in so many different fields going on. I feel like progress is going to be made. The other reason I'm optimistic is kind of a sad reason, and it has to do with the coronavirus. MECFS is, for the large majority of people, is follows a viral infection. And we know that many different viral infections can trigger the development later of MECFS. So we are expecting, but of course not certain, that many people who have COVID-19 may not fully recover and may actually develop symptoms that are like MECFS. And if that's the case, then there's going to be probably, I would say, just a wild guess, triple the number of patients in the country that we see today if that actually happens. So then I think the disease and research in the disease will get even more attention. Let me just spell out for our listeners and viewers again. Myalgic encephalomyelitis is the disease also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And it's very debilitating. It's, if you get it, there's not much hope of a cure and very little hope that you will live a normal life. Instead, you'll be confined sometimes to bed, always to a secondary road, always to fearing that if you put out too much effort, you'll pay a terrible price and have to come back to bed.
Right, and many different symptoms that wax and wane and and uh, come and go in various kind levels of severity, debilitating fatigue, uh, lightheadedness, un unrestful sleep, cognitive problems, and um, something called post-exertional malaise, which people may not recognize at first because after doing any kind of activity, there can be an exacerbation of any of the symptoms, but that might not happen for a day, two days after the activity. And the activity can be something as simple as washing the supper dishes. Uh, that's right. I have friends. I've been working in this field for quite some time. I've written about it and broadcast about it. And I know people who, after something as simple as going out to dinner, may a day later have to retire to their beds for two days. Uh, one person in particular I've seen seemed to be very energetic and yet pay a terrible price in two or three days in bed afterwards. Some patients, of course, are in bed for years. Others cannot tolerate sound or light. Uh, those are the extreme. Uh, how many of the extreme do you think there are, Sean? How many would? Of patients with extreme symptoms, extreme debilitation. Well, we think at least 25% of the patients, and there are estimated to be well over a million patients in the United States right now, and there could be many, many more than that, but that's a common estimate, one to two and a half million people. And of those, 25% are probably bedbound or completely homebound, and 75% of the patients cannot work at least can't work full-time. There's stigma attached to this disease, is there not? Well, there is, because there's no biomarker, there's no test that you can do that says that you have this disease. So it's something that's um, diagnosed only by the symptoms that you have and ruling out other diseases. And because the diseases vary, the symptoms vary so much from person to person, a lot of doctors are not very familiar with, with it, and they don't get to study it in medical school, so they may not know about it. And people may, their doctors may feel like they're hypochondriacs or it's all in their head or not believe them. This, this of course, is the worst kind of uh, reaction to get from one's healthcare provider especially when, it, when one is very debilitated and feeling so sick. Do you think that, that people are worse off during the, the, this pandemic when we're shut away? Those who are truly shut away, how are they managing to get food, uh, to have anybody to care for them, to bring things to them? Is there some sort of emergency network operating? People are managing as best they can. Many have caretakers already, and some of those are able to continue taking care of them. Others uh, are doing it more remotely, perhaps leaving food at the door. The lucky people have a family member who can help them, and the unlucky people are living on their own and finding it very difficult. I've been working with a patient over the last few days we're trying to get meals delivered to her, and there's no way right now that you can get meals on wheels. There's, there's just so much demand for remote delivery. So, I 
not quite sure how we're going to succeed, but we're working on it with her. Charmian, good luck. Cheers. Thank you, Llewellyn. That's our program for today. Thank you for coming along. And take care of yourselves. These are terrible times, but we'll get through them. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.